Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Labor unrest at the New York Times, janitors on strike at Twitter's headquarters, and today on the show, union base apprenticeships for young people, and the latest from the United Auto Workers. Welcome to the Thursday, December 8th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora and Stitcher. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with Zachary Boren. Now, Zachary works for the Urban Institute website, real simple, urban.org. He serves as Senior Policy Program Manager, and this is an organization, it's a nonprofit that provides data and evidence to help advance upward mobility and equity. The Urban Institute is a trusted source for changemakers who seek to strengthen decision-making, create inclusive economic growth, and improve the well-being of families and communities. And they've been doing this for more than a half a century, and they have delivered facts that inspire solutions. And that's what we want. We've got enough problems out there. We want solutions to those problems. What we are going to talk about today is a report that came out during National Apprenticeship Week, and it's titled Union-Based Apprenticeships for Young People, Creating Good Jobs and Meeting Employers' Needs for Skills. Connecting the dots here. There's a lot of good jobs, especially in the trades right now, but you need the skills. You need those apprenticeship programs to get into those jobs. So we'll talk about the advantages of union-based apprenticeship programs the hurdles the programs face, the strategies that unions need to adopt to recruit and support youth apprenticeship programs. Why this is a good time? Well, you know, there's a lot of jobs out there, so let's just ramp it up. What about the barriers and also success stories? And there's a lot of labor components to this. I mean, the bricklayers participated. The Seafarers International Union was also reference in this report very comprehensive if you go to the website urban.org you can download the report and there's a lot of good data there's charts in there and uh, it's something that we need to talk about and uh, and address and it's happening and it's going to happen right on the show with uh, Zachary Bourne our second guest on the show today is one of our regulars and that's uh, Desiree Hoffman on behalf of the United Auto Workers uaw.org is their uh, website One of the many proud sponsors of America's Workforce. We have a lot to talk about with Desiree today. Number one, a quick recap of the election. We had that special election in Georgia this week, which is going to change the dynamics in the Senate a bit. Uh, We'll take a look at the lame duck priorities, especially the National Labor Relations Board. We've been hitting this pretty hard the last week, week and a half. This is a labor board that has not had a budget increase since 2014. So right now, when you factor in inflation, they are down by 25%, down by 25% to the point where they're going to have to furlough workers, which I'm sure some politicians 
in Washington would like to see. So they're trying to accelerate that. The other issue is the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. Now, this is legislation. It's my understanding it has a bipartisan support, and it would uh, pretty much mandate employers to give pregnant women frequent breaks so they can get some water, maybe a, a lactation room if they're breastfeeding, flexibility in schedules for doctor's appointments, things like that. Maybe get away from heavy lifting, you know, before you deliver the baby, after you deliver the baby, you got postpartum issues and all that. So uh, we'll we'll talk about that. Another issue is um, what the UAW is calling on automakers and, and what they essentially are trying to do. They want to shift their supply chain out of a certain region in China where they're pretty much using slave labor. Yeah, it's called the Weiger region. We've talked about this on the show a couple of times, especially with Scott Paul. And a number of companies have moved out. But apparently, the auto workers are dealing with some suppliers still in that region. And the UAW is stepping up on that as well. Lastly, there's a strike going on. Hard to believe it's heading into its fourth week now at the University of California. And it's all over the state of California Uh, Berkeley, Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, 10 cities all together. And the UAW, well, they've got a history of organizing on college campuses. And it's my understanding that there is a tentative agreement, at least in some of those cities. But again, we have a strike. And actually, this strike is uh, now reaching historic proportions. In fact, I'm going to play a little clip from the uh, one of the protesters by the name of Kung Feng. Now, Kung says that he can't make ends meet because of the low pay. And some of these, I mean, these are student researchers. Some of them are adjunct professors. They're making like twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a year. You can't do that in the state of California. You can't live on that. Let's listen here on America's Workforce. So my kid is six years old. And he's been coming to the picket lines. I asked him the other day on the picket line what the strike meant to him. And he said, money. <laughs> Is he right? Yeah. Do we need living wages? Yeah. The university has yet to make us a real proposal on money. It's been 11 days. 11 days too long. And instead, they're illegally intimidating us, retaliating against us for participating in this strike. The other day, my kid was watching TV and uh, saw an ad for a toy. He turned to me and he asked, is 1999 too expensive? And I'm still thinking about that. You know, this university that prides itself on equity and diversity and inclusion. Tell me who's going to come here to pursue their dreams. Is it going to be kids who grew up thinking, if I want it, I can have it? Or is it going to be kids who grew up thinking, I can't afford to ask. This university is failing its educational mission, but here I'm learning something that is way more powerful. Talking about the injustice of the value of our labor that is not being returned to us. One day longer! One day stronger! Altogether, a total of 48,000 
UAW members at the University of California system are standing strong in their strike. And that's just one of them trying to win a fair contract. It is the largest, largest higher education strike in American history. And uh, the workers are fighting, again, for a good contract with living wages, respect at the heart of any agreement. And uh, just on Monday, they held a wake-up call action before dawn to demand that UC keep negotiating. Like I say, they're making some progress, but that's just one of the things that uh, Desiree Hoffman is going to talk about on the show today. Now, a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You could find more at BoydWatterson.com. Over 1,000 New York Times employees are set to walk out today if they do not get a contract. Well, here's the deal. Last Friday, December 2nd, the Times Guild notified management of its plans to stage a 24-hour work stoppage if an agreement was not reached. Well, that union represents almost 1,500 workers at the New York Times. 1,100 of them signed a pledge to walk out. The parties entered negotiations this week with the prospect of a deal that could avert a walkout. Well, as of last night, the Times Guild urged that management continued to refuse worker demands at the bargaining table, and the union signaled its intent to move forward with the walkout by releasing information about rallies and picket lines. You know, we'll get a complete uh, in-depth report on this tomorrow from John Schloys. John is head of the News Guild, and uh, he's in the middle of this mess at the New York Times. Meanwhile, janitors contracted to clean Twitter's headquarters in San Francisco went on strike this week. Picketing outside the office into the late afternoon, the janitors who are organized with SEIU Local 87 were protesting their scheduled termination at the end of the week after Twitter had not reached a new deal with the company that employs them. It's called Flagship. Now, Twitter officially terminated the contract with Flagship after the strike. Both Local 87... And the California Labor Federation maintained that the failure to reach a new deal is the result of a failure to bargain in good faith, which, by the way, is unlawful by the National Labor Relations Act. Now, Twitter has indicated, this according to the Labor Federation in California, that the new contractor hired for janitorial services will not rehire the striking janitors in contravention of state and county requirements to do so. This, by the way, is not the first time a tech giant has clashed with janitors represented by Local 87. In early October, around 250 janitors who cleaned buildings occupied by Meta, which used to be called Facebook, went on strike after their direct employer, SBM, laid off more than 120 of them at once. Now, that strike ended after a resolution was made lowering the amount of workers laid off, granting safer working conditions for remaining workers at Meta, and guaranteeing severance pay plus health care for impacted workers. Now, after the victory there, the president of Local 87 warned local news stations that tech companies industry-wide 
are engaging in efforts to downsize janitorial staff. That's been going on for years. And uh, one more here. Animation production workers at Nickelodeon Studios have filed to unionize with the Animation Guild. That's a part of IATSE, the International Association of Theatrical and Stage Employees. According to the union, nearly two-thirds of the 177 workers have signed authorization cards stating they'd like to be represented by the Guild. Production workers at Nickelodeon have complained of low pay and overpriced health care. That's a condition they claim is unsustainable. Well, the Animation Guild has already negotiated a collective bargaining agreement for a unit of around 400 artists, writers, and technicians employed at Nickelodeon. And the union? Well, they're seeking to extend the reach of the contract to those production workers as well. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with the Urban Institute and talk all about youth apprenticeship programs. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrans. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's liuna.org. From the Golden Gate Bridge to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without ironworkers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained ironworkers and 20,000 apprentices, the Ironworkers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Ironworkers, the sky's the limit. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.com. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Make sure you get the word union in there. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers, where you can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go to line number one and welcome a newcomer to the show. His name is Zachary Boren, and he is a senior policy program manager for the Urban Institute. And he spent some time at the Department of Labor dealing with apprenticeship programs. And this show does a lot to talk about apprenticeship programs and connect young people into the trades. 
mainly because we need them. There's a lot of job opportunities right now, and this is, once again, a pathway to the middle class. Zachary Boren, welcome to America's Workforce. I know you've been uh, working uh, at the uh, Urban Institute, urban.org is a website for the uh, Urban Institute. But talk to us about your time at the Department of Labor because that kind of that kind of what we're talking about today on the show, it leads us into the subject of these apprenticeship programs for young people. So what did you do at the Department of Labor? Yeah, I uh, well, thanks for having me on, Flash. Really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I was the, uh, the director of a registered apprenticeship and policy for the Office of Apprenticeship. I spent more than a decade uh, working on workforce development with most of my time really focused in on expanding uh, registered apprenticeship. Um, and so my, my goal there was, uh, you know, during the years with, uh, with director John Ladd was really thinking about how we modernize, uh, registered apprenticeship to, to build, uh, apprenticeships in more industries. And we went about doing that in a ter- really terrific way through, um, actually through, uh, two, two administrations and now into a third, uh, administration. Um, and uh, during my time, we expanded apprenticeships from about 375,000 uh, in 2013. And by the time I left, we were at a high mark of 630,000 uh, registered apprenticeships all across the country. If you compared that uh, to the size of the, uh, we, would, we would rival the 10 largest public universities uh, in, in the U.S., so, you know, the apprenticeship system is, is really critically important for how we bring uh, young people and older workers uh, up, to, uh, you know, up to a skill level where they're ready to, to take on um, some really good jobs that, that help them get in the middle class. So, Zach, if you don't mind, uh, let's let's talk about this report that came out a couple of weeks ago. It came out during a National Apprenticeship Week, and it's titled, once again, Union-Based Apprenticeships for Young People Creating Good Jobs and Meeting Employers' Needs and skills. And obviously, there's a lot of good jobs out there, as we all know, but we got to get the skills for that. So in a nutshell, can you run down what you learned in this report? I know you learned a lot at the Labor Department. You probably learned more just uh, getting this report together. Let's let's talk about that, if you don't mind. That's right. So um, at, at Urban Institute, we are a we are working with the U.S. Department of Labor. Uh, so it was, this project was was funded by by USDOL. We're a youth apprenticeship intermediary. So what that means is we are uh, doing not only the research around youth apprenticeship, but we are out there stimulating new youth apprenticeships. Um, And through this report, uh, we've done a couple of these. Um, This is the first one on uh, union-based apprenticeships for youth. We learned a lot about um, how well young people are doing uh, by by joining one of these uh, union youth apprenticeships, um, according to the wage data from from all youth apprentices, we we looked at the data that DOL keeps, and the average wage for a union youth apprentice completing their program was over thirty four an uh, an hour, and if you compared that to the non union programs, uh, they were at twenty two an hour. Um, consistently, young people are, are getting access to employer-sponsored health care benefits. Over 95% of union workers have access to health care benefits, uh, compared to only 68% of non-union workers. And apprentices are graduating from union-based programs and earn wages 
uh, comparable to college graduates. Um, in addition to the years of on-the-job experience, you know, making them immediately employable without all the college debt. Um, and, you know, additionally, uh, you know, we found that unions are really expanding the capacity of, uh, of the U.S. To, to really act as training providers. Uh, unions train more than half of the country's apprentices, um, 54%. Um, so most joint programs are financed uh, through a joint trust fund that supports apprenticeship training. And these training funds allow unions to invest more in all of their training programs, including pre-apprenticeship and apprenticeship programs. I'll give you an example. Uh, at 1199J, which was a healthcare program um, in New Jersey, the training fund covers all of the salary and time of the apprenticeship program directors and the staff dedicated to supporting these programs. So, you know, unions have been engaged in registered apprenticeship for a long time, uh, often having training funds that allow them to invest in and support these programs at a higher level than the non-union programs. And we see that, you know, there's a lot of durability um, in, in union-based apprenticeship programs where the training funds allow them to go and train workers over decades. Well, it is a proven model. There, there's no doubt about that. They've been around for a long time, and they just seem to be getting better. Um, but still, there's some barriers, and, and that came up in the report. If you can maybe talk about that, because I know, especially the national building trades, they're trying to get into uh, underserved communities. They want to get more women, people of color involved in the trades for, for good reasons. Just, you know, you talked about the, the pay and the benefits and all that. Talk to me about the barriers, because uh, that did come up in the report. Can you uh, can you discuss that part, Zach? That's right. There's there's quite a few barriers to really thinking about the expansion of uh, youth in in registered apprenticeship. Um, you know, and we we provide a couple of recommendations um, as well. One is this notion uh, around liability insurance, especially for uh, especially for the construction trade. So what we found was that, you know, uh, it, employers' uncertainty about the affordability of liability insurance, um, as well as uh, the, the wage and hour divisions administered hazardous orders, really kind of um, put questions in people's minds on whether or not they could hire uh, young people younger than 18. Um, in fact, we found that um, there were, uh, of the unions that that um, uh, of the construction unions that, that hire young people, there were some limitations on hiring young people uh, earlier than 18, uh, potentially because of some of these these orders. Um, you know, additionally, you know, there are some some real societal barriers when we talk about um, youth apprenticeship. You know, first we found out you know that young people who are you know, maybe ready to take on um, an apprenticeship, um, that, that they're not ready to do the math. Uh, they haven't been prepared in school. In fact, we found, uh, we looked at PIAC, which is the Program for International Assessment of Adult Competencies, that more than half of millennials lacked fundamental uh, math uh, for the workplace. And this really bears out in, in, what, in a, the research we found uh, that CEOs uh, had said that 59% of them said they had a hard time finding students with fundamental math skills. 
uh, positive drug tests were another uh, societal barrier. Uh, drug use is at an all-time high, and when union programs uh, require people to, to pass a drug test, uh, a lot of young people can't get into the program because of that. Uh, 43% of young people in uh, uh, are not in college use marijuana in 2020. It's the, the highest level in 30 years. And then wow. the last thing I'll mention is the stigma among parents. I mean, I think we, we all know this is this college for all mentality that prevails in the United States. Most parents worry about their, their young child pursuing an apprenticeship that doesn't require college. And, and this is a really sticky issue um, where, you know, uh, a lot of young people, they want to go into an apprenticeship, but their parents, um, you know, sort of question it. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that they, you know, parents have all the right, the right answers, when, especially when uh, apprenticeships in union-based programs are offering, you know, salaries that exceed $70,000 a year. Well, it's all contained in a report from the Urban Institute, Union-Based Apprenticeships for Young People. If you go to urban.org, you can download that entire report. Zachary Bourne joining us on the show today. He is a senior policy program manager for the Urban Institute. We'll continue our discussion with him later in the show. We're going to check in with the UAW and Desiree Hoffman, talk about the election, talk about the Pregnancy Fairness Act, and more back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Hi, this is Liz Schuler, president of the AFL-CIO, and I am a huge fan of Flash and America's Workforce Radio and Podcast. Hello from the Communication Workers of America, District 4. We are a labor union representing a vast array of workers in different industries, including the Association of Flight Attendants, Telecommunications, CWA Passenger Services, Public Health Care, and Education Workers, the IUE, CWA Industrial Division, the National Association of Broadcast Employees, the CWA News Guild, not to mention our growing digital sector, and many others. If you're interested in organizing your work group or learning more about what it means to be CWA strong, visit our website at www.cwad4.org. That's CWAD4.org. The United Auto Workers are one of the largest and most diverse unions in North America, with members in virtually every sector of the economy. Learn more about this proud sponsor of our program at UAW.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And don't forget, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up 
and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the North Coast Labor Federation. Let's go back to our live line rejoin, Zach Bourne. Zach is a senior policy program manager for the Urban Institute. We're talking about union-based apprenticeships for uh, young people. Report came out a couple of weeks ago, and it's a riveting report. If you go to urban.org, you can check it out. And uh, it, this is a good time. This is a good time. There's a lot of job opportunities. We're trying to get more young people involved in the trades. The report covered it was very comprehensive, talked about the barriers. We discussed that. I want to talk about the success stories now, and it's all included. And we should also mention there's, a, there's some union components here. I see the bricklayers and the seafarers union participated. They're quoted in this report. But let, let's get into the success stories, Zach. What, what what did the people say about the apprenticeship programs? Yeah, you know, apprenticeship programs in unions are, are you know, they, as I said earlier, they cover half of the, the country's uh, apprentices. Um, and we see that most of them are in construction. So 83% uh, of young people are entering an apprenticeship through construction. Um, so there's a real opportunity, I think, here for uh, unions, you know, outside of construction, especially the uh, the industrial unions and, and uh, public sector unions to get engaged and offer apprenticeships because they're they're really doing well. And we met some young people that are in their apprenticeship today. Um, so we interviewed a young man named Mohammed, who's a bricklayer in Michigan. He started his apprenticeship in 2020 after graduating high school. Uh, he's an immigrant. He moved from the U.S. To, uh, from Yemen and told us that he apprentices for the stability, the support, and opportunity for growth in his apprenticeship. He's a, a third-year bricklayer apprentice. He currently earns around $26 an hour, which will continue to allow him to rise as a journey worker. And if he continues, uh, he'll, he'll be a master brick mason. It's, a, it's really a terrific program. Uh, they cover $400 in tools uh, for their apprentices to get them started, uh, travel reimbursement, and anything else the apprentice needs, like boots and gloves. Um, and then mentorship is really a key component that allows apprentices to succeed at the bricklayers in Michigan. Um, in New Jersey, when we met Glennies. Uh, Glennie says that she's a CNA apprentice um, with St. Barnabas Hospital System, which is the, the largest hospital system in New Jersey. Um, apprentices like Glennie, they start out at $10 an hour, which sounds pretty low, but, you know, that's just the start. It's for the first six months, and then they move up to $12 an hour for the next six months. And after they complete their one-year program, they're earning at least $17 an hour, which is much higher than the national average for, for what um, certified nursing assistants really earn. And that's not the end. Uh, the apprenticeship trainer told us that 1189J sees apprenticeship as really the starting point for where apprentices can continue their training through the training fund and pursue other credentials uh, all the way up to a bachelor's of science in nursing. Great stories there, all contained in the report from the Urban Institute. Okay, I want to I talk about what politicians can do. And, and we talk a lot about policy on this show because policies, good policies lead to a good environment, especially for careers. Now, what are some of the policies that politicians can possibly put in place to, to get these programs? We're talking about apprenticeship programs 
to get them, you know, really moving across America. They're doing well. And don't get me wrong. You, you mentioned how the, the growth of them. But how do we take it to the next level, Zach? Yeah, we need a reform National Apprenticeship Act. Uh, first and foremost, we're working off a 1937 law that has overseen registered apprenticeship pretty well for for decades and decades. We're at 85 years, but it's time it's time to reform um, and really invest more. You know, if you look at what the the system invests for apprenticeship, it's around 200 million dollars. You compare that to Job Corps, uh, which invests over over a billion, uh, up to up to two billion a year, uh, just for one uh, workforce development program. And compare that to what we invest in higher education, um, which you know, uh, frankly, in some of the community colleges, is not producing the level of results apprenticeship is 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 uh, creating in terms of uh, completers. Um, we just need to invest more, and you know the the National Apprenticeship Act will really help codify what is good in the system today and build upon that to reform uh, for the future. We're really hopeful that um, you know the Senate may take up. Uh, I'm really hopeful that the Senate may take up uh, the National Apprenticeship Act or create a you know create a new uh, you know apprenticeship legislation of its own that really helps build upon, uh, you know, the success of the system. You know, I think additionally, we really need to think about, um, you know, at the U.S. Department of Labor uh, for how we bring young people um, in, into apprenticeships. I, I really think there's an opportunity for, for DOL to bring unions together to talk about how we recruit uh, young people uh, how we deal with uh, and make clear some of the hazardous orders, and then how we deal with uh, with liability insurance that's really keeping a lot of uh, employers on the sidelines and not adopting apprenticeships. I think those those few things would really help us advance apprenticeship going forward. Zach, a lot of unions listen to this show. Any uh, any advice you could give them? I I know they're doing what they think is best to to bring in young people. But there's got to be more. And, and I know you, you kind of touched on this in in your report. Any strategy advice here that you can uh, forward to us? Yeah, you know, I think there was a few things that we found worked really well. Um, you know, the first is pre-apprenticeship to registered apprenticeship. I think there's an opportunity to really work with young people to get them excited uh, about being in an apprenticeship program by offering uh, opportunities at the high school level and connecting really with with high schools themselves that um, not, are not yet connected to really uh, employers that are ready to hire. I think secondly, really connecting with um, with education associations. We think about uh, the National School Counselors Association and other associations like them that really we need to change the minds of. You know, a lot of counselors are advising young people that the only way to success is through a four-year degree. Absolutely yep. not. Absolutely not true. Um, and I think we need to take that that question really head on. And I think lastly, you know, I'm going to pro- provide a little words of encouragement for those unions not offering apprenticeships. Get in the game. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, NAB2 has done a terrific job 
on building apprenticeships. You know, they're 83% of all the young people are going into a construction apprenticeship. But, you know, my dad was a steel worker. You know, I, I think, you know, the industrial unions have a real opportunity to get engaged more in registered apprenticeship and offer youth apprenticeships. Mm-hmm. And for public sector unions, public sector unions are not offering youth apprenticeships or registered apprenticeships at the level that they should. So, you know, and I think there's a real opportunity for them to build, you know, consider the infrastructure bill, the infra- you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, all the opportunities that unions have ahead to really build their workforce, they're going to have to build them with young people. And yeah. so I really encourage them to really reach out to us. Hey, Urban Institute, we're a youth apprenticeship intermediary. Uh, we can help you figure out how to put together a really terrific apprenticeship program. Good stuff. And I think the dynamics are changing with those counselors, especially when those uh, kids come out of college and they're saddled with fifty, sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 in student debt. That That's an eye-opener for a lot of parents there. So we'll, we'll see what happens here. But, Zach, great job on this. I, I can tell you learned a lot at the uh, Department of Labor in your in your time there. Again, those of you listening right now, do check out this report, Union-Based Apprenticeships for Young People. Zach is one of seven people that worked on this report, creating good jobs and meeting employers' needs for skills. Urban.org. Zach serves as Senior Policy Program Manager. Great job. Let's, uh, let's do this again, okay? How's that sound? I'd love it. Yeah, have me on any time. Okay, yeah, we we need to keep uh, focus on this subject. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Desiree Hoffman on behalf of the United Auto Workers coming up next. This is America's Workforce. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWaterson.com. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The The United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the US, US, Canada, Canada, and the the Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. Now... Back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to Washington right now and join Desiree Hoffman. Desiree is with the United Auto Workers, proud sponsor of America's Workforce, UAW.org. Desiree serves as 
Assistant Legislative Director. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of things that need to get done in Washington and need to get done right away because things are going to change come January. Desiree Hoffman, let, let's first start off with the uh, the election. And, well, we had one this week, too, <laughs> on Tuesday in Georgia. You got to feel pretty happy about that. Let's start there. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Like, you know, politicians and pundits and news anchors um, really talked a lot and predicted that Democrats would lose and lose big in the midterm elections in 2020-22, that there was this big red wave coming, but it didn't materialize. Um, but what did happen is that Republicans did con- take control back of the House. They have a 221 to 213 majority, but it's a much narrow majority than what many had predicted and estimated. They'll have an right currently as we speak, they have an eight seat majority. I believe there's two seats that are still pending. And then the Senate, as you just mentioned, um, we had a break through um, with Senator Warnock from Georgia um, winning his race. The, the, the Democrats held a majority, um, no matter what would happen with this election, with Warnock's election. But what it does do now is it really firmly puts the um, power in the hands of the Democrats, which will enable them, able, enable them to move judicial nominations at a much more rapid pace. They've already been um, putting in great pro-worker pro-civil rights, um, pro-labor judges, but now they'll def- will definitely be able to move that agenda uh, in probably new and deeper and profound ways than we expect expected. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was it was a big surprise for so many people and a good surprise for President Biden, no doubt about that. Uh, my concern yeah, absolutely. And, and your concern and all of labor's concern right now is the National Labor Relations Board. And this is this is a board that many conservatives would like to see disappear, disappear, <laughs> especially now, because there's a lot of organizing going on. And the NLRB is right in the middle of it all, and they're they're trying to keep up. And that's a very difficult task because I'm reading they're working on the budget from 2014. Is that right? Is that where we are with this? Yeah, you hit the nail on its head. So one way to make an agency super inefficient or starve them and from doing their job and fulfilling their mission and in the NLRB's case, their mission is to enforce the National Labor Relations Act, which protects workers in their collective bargaining agreements and when they try to form a union and their union election cases, and then when they address unfair labor practices. And so they have been funded at the same level since 2014, as you accurately said, which with inflation really amounts to a 25% budget decrease. Um, and so that and really prevents them from fulfilling their job. And with all the union representation cases going on, and we know that Starbucks and Amazon have really opened the eyes of society at large um, about what workers are facing in the front lines. But what they're facing is we've all been experiencing that for a number of years, but it's given them people new understanding about what workers are facing on the front lines with, you know, work and health and safety issues and long hours and, wages declining and just not feeling respected in their jobs. And so if the NLRB doesn't get the, you know, some increases in funding here, they're going to be unable to adequately address all these new union representation petitions 
and unfair labor practices when, you know, workers are fired from their jobs, for example, for supporting mm-hmm. a union. Uh, so this is the- a big push that we're doing right now, making sure that all the senators um, that we, you know, are supporting increase in funding. And it's just really uh, $368 million, a drop in the bucket compared to many other line items in the budget. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm hearing they're working on 10-year-old computers, some even older than that. Can you can you believe how bad it is at the NLRB? That's crazy. It is crazy. And, um, you know, it's those folks out in the field, especially who go and they research and they investigate, it, it's going to potentially result in some furloughs. And, and that's the last thing that we want to see yeah. um, with this agency. So can we get it done before the end of the year? Because it frightens me, you know, when, when the, the house turns over to Republicans, I don't think this is going to go anywhere. Can, so can we get it done now? Yeah. So the goal, you know, right now they're talking through getting this 368 million for the national labor relations act in the omnibus package. Um, we're hoping that we know that leader Schumer has heard from labor and he's supportive. And now we just need to, in, in these negotiations, make sure that's a part of it. So there is a strong chance that it's, that it's there. All right. We'll see what happens here. I want to switch to the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. Now, I I can't even believe we're talking about this. In, in today's age, you would think that if a woman gets pregnant, she wouldn't have any problems on the job. But apparently we need legislation to uh, to make sure that things are uh, taken care of properly here. Can you explain what's going on here and what kind of support the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act has right now? Yeah, the UAW is a part of a broader uh, coalition, broader um, group of stakeholders. This bill passed in the House with bipartisan support and it has been stalled in the Senate. And there is actually bipartisan support there as well. Um, And basically the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act would um, ensure that women who are pregnant or postpartum get reasonable accommodations when they are in physically strenuous jobs. And so, for example, like having um, a lactation room or being able to switch into a different role during that time or getting water on the job. You, you Like you said, you would think that workers, work, employers across the country, that this would be a no-brainer. Um, Mm -hmm. But sadly, in a lot of cases that women are bringing before like the EEOC or even to the courts, they've been losing um, time and time again. So it's clear we do need to do something there. And the UAW strongly supports this. You know, a lot of women work in, you know, high risk occupations. um, And the reality is women are half of the workforce. And it's high time that we do these things. A lot of our collective bargaining agreements, you know, do a, a lot of this. But we really need to make this a federal effort, a federal standard um, to ensure that all women workers across the country have this protection. I recall a story, it was not long ago, about a pregnant woman working in a Amazon warehouse. And you know, for men, women, anybody that works in an Amazon warehouse knows how difficult that uh, that work is. And uh, there, yeah, there, there were cases, I believe she... She got injured on the job, and they wanted her to do some heavy lifting, and she's pregnant. I mean, she was mm-hmm. I mean, almost full-term pregnancy, and um, mm-hmm. and that's I'm sure that's not an isolated case. But sadly, 
this is what we have to deal with in, in today's environment. Right. So how how do you feel about this bipartisan support? Well, first of all, yeah. will anything will anything be done in this uh, in the lame duck, or will we have to wait till next year on this? It could potentially be attached to the NDAA bill, and that's what's under in conversation right now. Um, and you know, it's. It's, I'm hoping it gets done. And on a personal note, I have to say, I agree with you. I come from central Pennsylvania and I've worked in factories, believe it or not. I'm kind of probably an outlier in DC as a lobbyist, but worked in meat packing plants. I've worked um, in other jobs like that. I even worked at Taco Bell. It's not like a, um, you know, that like that kind of job, but it was really repetitive and really exhausting and really grueling. So I totally feel for people who are in those jobs. It's a lot more strenuous, strenuous than people think. And a lot of members of Congress, not the ones we support, clearly, but a lot of members of Congress who have no idea what workers are facing out there on the front line. Yeah. Well, it's good that we're talking about this and hopefully it can, uh, it can get the funding and move forward. Okay, another issue here, and uh, sadly, we're, we're still involved with the products made in China. And I understand the UAW is calling on automakers to shift their supply chain. The supply chain's been in the news, especially during the uh, the pandemic, and they want them to shift their supply chain out of a certain region in China after it was reported that um, they used uh, pretty much forced labor. And, and China's yeah. real good at that. I mean, they'll they'll it's pretty much prison camp labor. I I, I think they call that the Weiger region over there Mm -hmm. and we've talked about this extensively with the alliance for american manufacturing there's been a push on this i know congress is is involved where where are we i mean do we do we have enough i guess clout right now to say hey china you can't do this anymore so like you pointed out every major car company in that report um supply chains um were implicated to varying degrees um, by direct connections um, to companies that are known to use forced labor. And China, um, as you just stated, um, is using state-sponsored forced labor um, to target and persecute the Uyghurs and other Turk and Muslim um, communities. Um, and this is very, very alarming, and it definitely shines a bright light on why we need to establish high-road supply chains and ensure that we have, you know, high road labor standards and environmental standards, because clearly um, these supply chains, um, you know, are at high risk for using um, forced labor, the Uyghurs, as you mentioned. And President Curry um, of the UAW issued a statement yesterday basically saying that the autos, you know, need to cut ties to these state-sponsored forced labor in, in China and in the Uyghur region. Very concerning. Because, you know, we need to make sure we have, adopt more high road policies across the globe and in our supply chains. Sadly, I have to uh, report that the Alliance of Automotive Innovation, which is a trade association that represents General Motors, Toyota, Volkswagen, Hyundai, and other, ma- other automakers, did not immediately comment on this. So I, I don't know if they're stunned by that. They got to know what's going on. They, they got to know. And uh, I, I know they, they want their parts. They want to make sure that the cars, are, I know there's a problem with chips and all that stuff. And they want to make sure because there is a demand for vehicles. I get that part. But we have to, we got to play by the rules here. We got to play by the rules. And, and you, what are we going to compete with? Forced labor, prison labor? I mean, that's not the way to address the situation. So 
Um, yeah, I think all of them just will be looking very closely. I think this report, um, you know, will really make folks look closely at who they're using in their supply chains with labor. Um, and, you know, it's a really important to do that. Consumers are concerned about that. Um, we should be concerned about it here in the United States. And, you know, clearly we think that um, companies need to do a better job there. Yeah. A whole lot better job. You know, one more before you go, and I appreciate your time, Desiree. And this is the uh, the strike at the University of California. It's going on in 10 cities. I can't believe it's going on into uh, four weeks. And we hear so much about the high cost of education. Well, you know, the people that go to college pay a lot of money, but that money somehow never finds its way to the people that work in those universities. We're talking about 48,000 academic workers in 10 University of California cities and the UAW has been really, really involved in this. There's, I mean, the UAW has done a bang-up job when it comes to organizing, like, adjuncts and uh, researchers and all that. I'm just wondering, uh, any update on that? I mean, what are you hearing? Are, are they getting anywhere close to some kind of a settlement? What do we know about it right now, Desiree? Well, we know that collectively, you know, we have um, the postdoctoral scholars and the academic researchers. They've reached a tentative five-year agreement with the university, and they vote whether to ratify, um, I believe, sometime this week. Um, and then we have also the academic student employees and student researchers. Um, these, A lot of these students are first contract. So we have already existing members, and then we have first contract uh, workers who are negotiating a contract. So we have the convergence of all that at the same time. But what they share is that they've joined the UAW because um, they are fighting for, you know, better wages, um, you know, better health care. The cost, soaring cost of living is huge, a huge issue in, in California. And they've, um, you know, they they provide such critical work. Their Their work at the university is not trivial. They perform experiments. They write research grant proposals. They generate creative ideas. Um, and, and, and you know this, their hard work and dedication is a major reason why the school system received $3.7 billion. Say that again, $3.7 billion in federal research contracts and grant revenue. Um, and, and, you know, that's clearly, they clearly provide a critical research, their researchers and their teachers. And so, We'll see in the, hopefully in the, in the coming weeks where things land on their their negotiations. But I'm very hopeful. Okay, good. Good to hear. Desiree Hoffman, Assistant Legislative Director for the UAW, one of the many proud sponsors of America's Workforce, UAW.org for complete updates. You take care, and uh, we'll talk down the road, okay? Sounds great. Thank you. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, I'm going to check in with John Schloyce at the News Guild and labor lawyer Joyce Goldstein. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.